With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Salutations, Mets fans. Welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Steve Sippa and Aaron York. Gentlemen, yesterday evening, we're recording this on Monday night, John Heyman tweeted out, For what it's worth, heard Marlon's new manager is outside the box, and no one mentioned today tonight. Hashtag mystery manager. Of course, we now know that to be Marlon's DM, uh, GM, Dan Jennings. But if you go for an outside-the-box selection for Mets manager, who would you choose? Aaron, you want to go first, or should I? Uh, if you already have someone, you should go. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, well, ladies and gentlemen, his name is Paul Heyman. I had that for the... If you, you couldn't even bet on that in Vegas. But go ahead. Give us your case. <laughs> I mean, think about it. <clears throat> He's an amazing motivator. He's a great strategist. He would have awesome media sessions. Uh, <laughs> I believe he he is, ha- a, is he a Jersey or a Long Island guy, too, so he's local. Right. He could handle inept uh, owners, and he wouldn't be in charge of handling the money. So 
It's a win-win. That sounds awesome. The post-match, uh, post-game press conferences would be kind of <laughs> amazing too. My pitcher, Matt Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Aaron, who you got? Johan Santana <laughs> is the one in however many games that we had that no hit drought. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would. I think I would go for. I would think about bringing Omar Minaya back to be the manager instead of the general that manager. That is outside the box. <laughs> that's a, kind of a reversal, or not a reversal, that's kind of like the same thing what the Marlins did, except Omar Minaya is not the current general manager. He is. He would fit in with the likes of uh, Brian Price because he kind of has shown to dislike the media. He tried to submarine Adam Rubin's career, so... You'd be good at that, which apparently is not a fireable offense. I mean, I think managers these days should understand that it's the media's job that if they find something out that they should that they're going to make it public. But I get it's apparently not a requirement that you understand that today. So I think Orm and I would be a good job. He certainly, I think, would get along with the players pretty well. He's a really outgoing guy. He's I've been told he's. Uh, he's a really nice guy, despite what the uh, the state that he left the organization in. But we're not going to argue about that now. I think he would get along with the players. He'd be a good, good motivator, and he'd argue with the media, which is what a lot of managers are doing these days. So there you go. So I'm going way off the board. I'm going to hand over the managerial reins of the team to Mets Twitter. Yes. I think we need yeah. to put their like anger to some sort of productive use. So we can just set the lineup every uh, day by Tango Tiger's lineup optimizer tool. <laughs> Whatever it spits out. Well, if that, that wouldn't be Isn't Mets Twitter. Isn't that what Twitter, the Mets are then... already doing? Uh, probably that, not. If you're uh, doing that, then it's not Mets Twitter. It's Sitebot because Sitebot is enlightened. Mets Twitter is not. I think we will, for all in-game, in-game decisions, will be settled by retweet or fave. <laughs> Just pull Mets Twitter. It's like, should we bring in Carlos Torres? Retweet for oh, retweet for Carlos Torres, fave for Alex Torres. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. That's awesome. We just have some intern in the dugout, bench coach, monitoring Mets Twitter. <laughs> we can have like a, ro- a rolling sort of like you... Like what was the old like a like in Athenian times? Like they would just randomly pick five hundred people that had to serve in uh serve in their sort of legislative body. Right, right, right. So just like five hundred people that have like hashtag Mets somewhere in their Twitter bio. Yeah. Get selected at random for that night and they have to uh retweet and fave for all like in game decisions. I'm surprised the minor league team hasn't done that as some kind of promotion. That seems like the ultimate minor league promotion. That would be like a St. Paul Saints kind of thing. I think yeah. Bill Vec once did a thing where he had like where he had fans hold up signs and they asked the they had the fans manage the game or something. Bill Vec Twitter before Twitter. That does make sense. Uh, can we actually talk about this for a second though? Because this is crazy. Dan Jennings is now the manager of the Marlins. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know much about Dan Jennings before I heard the news and then I read that he had it, he had a couple seasons 
experience as a high school coach, and yes. other than that, was basically a suit. No, he's so. a, he, I mean, he came through the scouting ranks. Right. So, I mean, he's like an old-school player dev guy. Uh, you know, he's but not he's like still a Harvard a... MBA or anything. Um, but So he's not a – he's right, he's not a stat suit, but he, he had not been in a dugout of – any kind. He's not worked in a dugout of any kind in how many years? He's he's not a manager. He's never done that. Correct. You um, have to start and, somewhere. Yeah, so the last time this was attempted was with A.J. Hinch and the Diamondbacks, and that didn't work out so well. I mean, it was pointed out to me that he did – I mean, he came from the front office, but he had some uh, minor league managing and coaching previous to that, so it's not even quite the same. Hinch, Hinch now is another managerial job. Yeah, he's so. with the uh, Astros are doing quite well. Yeah. And from Jennings' point of view, it's like, what do you do? It's like, you kind of have to take the job because your boss is crazy. <laughs> like, I mean, we've all worked, I assume, at this point for, like, kind of jerk bosses at various points in time. Sure. Um, probably not as well compensated as Dan Jennings, but it's just kind of like, if your boss tells you, you're the manager now, it's like, okay, I guess, because you're crazy. <laughs> you built a giant fish tank into the backstop of your stadium. Sure Anything is possible. Um, and I guess he might do better than Redmond just by having, like, Yelich, Alvarez, and Jose Fernandez all healthy through no, like, effort of his own. Yeah, and that team's better than what they've showed. Are they? I mean, nah. probably a little bit. <laughs> Everyone here hates the Marlins, and I agree that they're not so much better than the Mets, but I also think they're not a lot worse than the Mets, I think. They have a chance to go 500. Or they also, I think they also have a chance to get a wild card spot. Right, uh, but I mean, if the Mets were with... if the Mets were 16 and 21 through 37 games, we'd be disappointed certainly, but we'd oh, be like fantastic. shocked. That's when they fired their manager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the Marlins. Yeah, the difference is the Marlins have played below their potential. I think the Mets have played a little above their potential, but um, especially the way D Gordon is playing. I mean, a lot of uh, people laughed at that when they made that trade. I think they gave was that where they gave away Andrew Heaney. Yes, who was a really good-looking young pitcher for Gordon, who's kind of a better fantasy baseball player than a real baseball player. But he's been a really good real baseball player. So, and their outfield is is really good, and Ichiro has been really good um, pitching. Not as much, but like you said, Fernandez might come back and be really good. So. I I I think they underperformed, but I think yeah they have a great chance to make Jennings look good. I think especially in Stanton's playing like an MVP. And I mean I want to be clear the the Marlins are a moribund franchise that every piece of shit they get on the internet and from elsewhere today. And there's certainly the fact that it likely in small but probably negligible ways helps the Mets this year. But I kind of feel bad for Marlins fans. Such as it is. I mean, we're at the point now where the franchise has been around for 20 years. I mean, there are legitimately people in college that grew up Marlins fans. Oh, God. Or in their early... I know, we're all (laughs) old and speeding towards death. But, you know, it's it's fair enough. And the fans are the ones that kind of pay the price here for having crazy ownership. So I I would like to at least extend them the same sympathy I would hope other fan bases would extend to the Mets, who also have crazy ownership, though in a different way. Yeah, as crazy as the Wilpons are, I don't think they'd ever do something really crazy like this. I mean, Redmond was a pretty good mayor. He overachieved with that team last year. They won or a few less games than the Mets, but 
I mean, I had, didn't even. I thought he was a decent manager. He's they like a there's that ownership group supposedly likes a fiery guy. I don't know if Jennings fits into that, but I have no idea. Yeah, he, it was it was a weird time to do it. It was everything about it was very strange. Can we also mention as we as crazy as this is how insane the Mets Twitter meltdown would be if the Wilpons fired Terry Collins and replaced him with Sandy Alderson. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, literally, the conflagration on Twitter would, like... Sandy's mess becomes messier. Yeah, it would, like, power a nuclear reactor. And really, Mets Twitter's tears are, like, wine to me anyway, so I would enjoy that as well. And then Alderson would come out in the... Pitcher would be batting ninth, and it turned out that the pitcher batting A's was Terry's idea all along. Double swerve. <laughs> What? So this is episode 117 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the Sympathy for the Marlins edition? I guess why not, but that will be the last of the Marlins talk. Um, that's not entirely true, actually. Uh, I have a correction from last week's show, when we did our opening question last week, putting the Mets in a Broadway play. I mentioned that Cats would be a good choice for the Reds, because Matt Latos is a cat named Cat Latos. Oh, that's right. But now, I still haven't quite fully adjusted the fact that Matt Latos pitches for the Marlins. <laughs> that's right. So it would be Fish Stripes. I don't know. I can't think of a good synonym that starts with F or S in this case. Okay, anyway, now we are done with the Marlins. All right. Move on to the Mets, since this podcast is nominally about the Mets. And we have more Thor this week. He made another start. We're going to talk about it, because why not? It was kind of cool. We'll also talk about where are the Mets going to get offense, because where are the Mets? I know they scored 19 runs in the last two games. I understand that. It's still not good. So we'll see what the picture looks like, and where do we go from here? Then we have Toby Hyde of Mets Minor League Blog, and the voice of the Savannah Sand Nats will come on, talk a little bit about the Savannah Sand Nats. We did the St. Lucie Mets last week with Jeff Moore. I think the week before we might have been done, or two weeks before we did my trip to Binghamton, so we'll hit Savannah this week as we continue our sort of impromptu tour through the uh, full-season ball affiliates. I realized last week, or last year around this time, I did a podcast entitled uh, The Savannah Sand Nats and Cold Bats. I may just recycle that title for this week. It still fits. After that, we have your emails and, of course, your IFK Gothenburg update. We'll kick things off this week, episode 117, with Noah Syndergaard's second start, which at least two-thirds of us saw on TV and all of us consumed in some form. So this may be more of a uh, dialogue this week. Uh, I think he looked better and more comfortable against Milwaukee. It could just be it's his second start. You could also argue and be correct that lineup is not as good as the Cubs lineup. But what were your guys' impressions of Noah Syndergaard's second start? Well, he I think that it he, he did himself look more comfortable. He was pitching a lot more, you know, inside. He was mixing in his curve a, a lot more and it looked better. <clears throat> um, and based on, you know, just the start, like we were talking about last week, if he pitches like this for the rest of the season, you know, decent... Nothing completely spectacular, but very good 
I see no reason to insert Dylan G back into the lineup. We will get to that issue, of course. But I, I agree with you generally. I mean, he was pretty much able to dominate just throwing his fastball to sort of all four quadrants of the strike zone. And when he can do that at 96 to 98, I mean, you're not going to need much else. You know, the curveball, I got in a little spat on Twitter about the breaking ball. It just really, I don't know, it hasn't looked the same to me. It's very slider-ish most of the time, which is fine. Um, it's just not sort of that big, high 70s, 12 to 6 curve. He'll show that on occasion. Uh, one of them he threw to Carlos Gomez, most notably, that everyone's going to gif, which annoys me because it's like, all right, there's the one, how about the seven... 70% of his curveballs, he wasn't spotting at all, and no one's making gifts out of those. I could take a terrible start or a fringy prospect and gif his 10 best pitches and make him look like a top 100 dude. But regardless... Yeah, from what I've seen from his first start, it does go more side-to-side side than a 12-6, to six, like Clayton Kershaw curveball. Um, but it does move really well, just... From what I've seen, I didn't break down tape of him in the minor leagues or anything. But, um, yeah, of course he could locate it better if he could throw it for more strikes. That'd be awesome. Uh, I listened to his second start, his most recent one, on the radio because my girlfriend and I were driving back from Binghamton because her brother just graduated from Binghamton University. And she was really annoyed at me because... When we were still, we were in New York, and even and seven and the seven ten ten signal was going wow 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 wow. So and I kept it on because I knew it was going to clear up like really soon, and it did just for him to plunk Carlos Gomez, who fortunately is okay. But anyway, I kind of agree with Steve that yeah, I mean he doesn't have to do much more. He's thrown. Six innings and only, what, three or four guys reached base against him. So, I mean, that's better than what Dylan G is going to give them on an average night. So he just kind of has to keep churning out starts like this. And, uh, yeah, it's just better location across the board. Uh, you know, hitters have real trouble catching up to that fastball. Although after he hit Gomez, I think Ryan Braun had a really nice at-bat against him where he's able to fight off some of those pitches. And that's yeah. partly because he, do, he doesn't have total confidence in that curveball yet. So look, know, the breaking ball, so far, it's not, but, it's not bad. And I think yeah. it's a major league quality breaking ball right now. He still doesn't always have the feel or command for it, but I think that'll come with more experience, getting more comfortable throwing it in different counts. I mean, yeah. Cause it's also good. You could keep rolling him out there and he's, it's going to make up for a lot of mistakes that would happen maybe if he only threw a 93 or a 92-mile-per-hour fastball, I think. And as, as weird as it is to say, you know, I, I'm almost more confident in Syndergaard going multiple times through a lineup with a 97-mile-per-hour fastball he's commanding well than I am with Dylan G's full four-pitch mix. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. I mean, G's not, he's not a great pitcher. So the thing with G, and uh, Alderson came out today and basically said, well, we're not committing to anything. But the writing does seem to be a little bit on the wall here, because does he really need a 100-pitch rehab start this week? He hasn't missed that much time. If they were committed to giving Dylan G more opportunities or keeping Dylan G in this rotation, 
you know, they could easily have brought him back up after this last rehab start in St. Lucie at the end of last week. Or they could have gone two turns through the through this stretch of what, 20 games and 20 days with a six-man rotation. You know, they can still keep him down for this rehab start and still do that for sort of the end of it and kick the can down the road. But, you know, and we touched on this last week, but realistically, he's not upping his trade value in the next two weeks, especially coming off, you know, admittedly not an arm injury or anything, but still an injury. So what are you doing? You're hoping Thor gets shelled to take yourself to take your front office off the hook? You know, the Pirates' offense has actually been worse than the Mets. Though anything can happen in one start. But, you know, don't make... These are the tough decisions you got to make. There is no easy... <clears throat> there is no easy solution. They don't want to make... Well, I mean, there is an easy solution. You move G to the well, pen and keep Syndergaard in their starting rotation. Right, but then, you yeah. know, you lose value in G as a starting pitcher and blah, 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 but whatever. But, I mean, I agree move G to the pen and keep Syndergaard in the ro- in the rotation. but And this bullpen could use an, another uh, you know veteran right-handed arm that can get major league hitters out. Has a long track record of doing so. Carlos Torres agrees. Yeah. And it, and it would be it would be less frustrating for them to be delaying a decision if they didn't need a guy like G in the pen so badly, but I mean, Alex Torres has been walking everyone. They're still waiting for Vic Black and Bobby Parnell to come back. So they could really use G. He could maybe pitch some eighth, seventh, eighth innings. Maybe, even, you know, not just be the long man, but pitch in high leverage situations for them because they just they don't have a lot of dependable guys right now outside of Familia. Pitching is, of course, not the primary issue with the Mets right now. That would be, uh, let's take a look here. Yes, the offense. And even after this past weekend's offensive explosion, the Mets sit as a team entering play tonight. Though based on how it's going so far, I don't think it's gone up. Hitting 239, 304, 365, which is 24th in baseball by Fangraph's weighted runs created plus. 24th in isolated slugging, and 24th in on-base percentage. So I think we can safely say the Mets are the 24th best offense in baseball. And that is not going to cut it. But where are the improvements coming from over the balance of the season? And they need to make improvements. You know, outside of Matt Reynolds, who suddenly is getting talked about, weirdly like he's like a top 100 national guy being held down rather than a you know, empty 260 batting average that can probably battle at shortstop yeah, because Flores I, has looked so bad at shortstop. I, I don't get that. People fall in love with the minor league numbers. And they're not even that good in, in the context of Vegas, so I think Matt Reynolds will be a, a cromulent. No one cares. I just see the numbers. They're like, this no, is I know. I understand right this. But the point is the farm is spent at this point. Herrera's hurt. Flawecki's up. You know, you're not going to see Nimmo and Conforto in 2015. So you're not finding some boost. They're probably not trading for a big bat. So what's the solution here, fellas? Without a trade? Without a trade. What needs to happen? They have to get healthy. <laughs> so is it is it as simple as that? Pretty um, much. It would help. I mean, Darno and Wright 
both sound like they're about three weeks away, and I've been saying that they're about three weeks away for the last three weeks of the podcast. Yeah, I think three weeks in a row we've heard Wright is going to resume baseball activities on Monday. I think I think today he, he, they said he did everything except swing a bat, which yeah. sounds. <laughs> and Darno took some dry swings, but you've got guys. You know, Darno's coming off. And yeah, yeah, it's a pinky, but it's still a hand injury, so you wonder if that's going to affect his swing or his power, at least in the short term. And Wright, oh, God knows with Wright, his back's bothering him again. Could that be an issue? I mean, I think that will improve the lineup, but is that enough? I don't know if it's enough, but it's, re- realistically, it's all that the team can do. Yeah. They're kind of boxed in. Mm-hmm. I mean, Granderson has certainly looked better lately. Um, but you look up and down this lineup, and it's like the team kind of is what it is. Yeah, you're you know, not Flores gonna... and Duda, you're not going to expect a ton more from offensively. You know, while Ploiecki's here, I think he'll hit a little better. Kadir? Mm-hmm. You know, Juan Ligaris? I think he'll get more extra base hits over the course of the season, but, you know, this has always been kind of in there. You know, in 2013, he had a hair under 5% walk rate, a 22.8% K rate, and hit 242, 281, 352 with a 310 Babbitt. 2014, he had a little under 5% walk rate, cut the K rate to a little under 20%, hit a 341 Babbitt, and hit 280, 320. 380. This year is under 4% walk rate, same exact K rate, 330 BABIP, 271, 295, 329. So if you look at his sort of career numbers, you want to regress the largest sample size. You got 260, 30, 360, which is, you know, I think a reasonable projection for him going forward, which is fairly significantly below league average, but you don't care because he's Juan Ligaris. It's certainly playable, but you're not getting an offensive boost there. You know, I think I said before on the podcast, the defense isn't good enough to punt, or sorry, the offense, you're not getting enough offense to punt defense as much as you are this year. If you look at sort of the the broad-based metrics, so not like individual UZR and crap like that, you know, by defensive efficiency... And by sort of uh, baseball references, defensive adjustment, they grayed out as averaged slightly above. I don't know if I believe that, but even if I do believe that, that's not good enough to be punting offense as much as they are right now. So what what happens? Well, that's the reason why the Daniel trade Daniel Murphy train has taken off because he's made some really lousy defensive plays, and he hasn't hit as well as he can, so... I didn't actually mention Murph, but I just... I think Murph's going to get there at the end of the year, but just the difference... I I know you didn't mention him specifically, but when you said, well, they're... their offense isn't good enough to punt defense, I think Murph is a guy who so far, from what he's done offensively, has been the poster boy for that, because... You, you, I mean, his whole second base career, you've dealt with some of the mistakes, and because he's a decent hitter and he has a chance of, of, did he lead the league in hits that one year? I mean, he's he's up there. He can, he's a really good line drive hitter. So you deal with the defense. But even, even when Murph is Murph, it's still not really as much offense as you'd like overall 
to play a minus 10 defender at second base. I mean, he makes it work. You can live with Daniel Murphy. You can't live with as many Daniel Murphys as they're living with right now. Yeah. Um, although Michael Kadire is going to stick in the lineup, maybe you could... I mean, if you're going to trade for someone, you'd probably trade for a corner outfield who could, you know, more of a two-way offense-defense player. Um, like Carlos Gomez? Yes. He hit a home run today. I don't know if the... It's too early to talk about... I mean, the Brewers have to be more bad for a longer period of time. I mean, they're pretty bad. I think they're still... I know, but I think they're still talented enough to turn it around. I I mean, if they're still bad in July, I think they start moving. But Gomez is really affordable. If they think they can piece something together even next year, they're not going to move him. So I just don't know how feasible any of this. I mean, even if trade possibilities are. Even if the team had the resources to beat out another team to trade for Gomez, are they? You know, they've always been hesitant to. You know bench or release or whatever you do with, you know, a older veteran guy like a Kadair or a Granderson in the in this case. So I don't even really see the team as entertaining thought, you know, the, the thought of trades because we have Granderson and we have Kadair. I think the stakes are a little different now though. I mean this is the team in first place entering tonight's action. They may not be when you hear this podcast. We'll see how it goes. But you know, a team that's in competition now. So the Stakes are different. Your approach has to be different. And Kadir's deal, you know, if it was Granderson that was doing this, that would be one thing, because there's a lot, little more money committed on the back end. You know, Kadir, really what they're paying him isn't that much more than the going rate for a fourth outfielder nowadays in the free agent market. What's he making, $8 million this year and twelve next year? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's more than guys like David Murphy and Shane Victorino, but it's not... Right, if you figure a, fifth, a fourth outfielder maybe. Three to six, although six is a little on the high end. But so yeah, I mean it's an overpay, but that's fine. You know, you play him against lefties, use him as a as a pinch hitter off the bench. No, is it again your dollars per war? Right, right. Is going to go down, but if the idea is to win, you know, eighty eight ninety games this year, you know, look at what it's, you can't just go off the numbers. It's a bad six weeks, which can happen to anyone, and Kadair has a recent track record of being very good, but, you know, you want to talk about the eye test, he has not looked good at the plate by any stretch of the imagination. His K rate has gone through the roof, and, you know, that profile, when if when and if the bat speed starts to go a little bit, this can be what happens. You know, he's had his share of injuries over the last few years, as we all know. Now, I'm not saying it's the end, but they may want to consider starting to plan like it is possibly at least warrants making that kind of move in the short term. I mean, for any other team in contention, I don't want to say any other team, that's not fair. Most teams would at least consider just eating the money. I don't mean like DFAing him, but like, you know, paying. Right. Like the Boston Red Sox had no problem DFAing right. Alan Craig. They don't care. It's just money, and it's not that much money. I think he's probably guaranteed roughly about as much as Kadir is, or three years instead of two. But sometimes you've got to make those decisions if you want to be competitive. 
I'm not saying it plays out that way in the long term, but these are the things you have to at least be willing to consider if it comes to that. You know, if we're sitting here on July 18th and it's the same kind of situation, then and you're they're still in a playoff race, you know, make the move you have to make. I would hope so, and they don't just figure they can get by with what they have. Yeah, I just don't see where it's coming from. And sure, a decent amount of that is, or sort of the overall numbers are dragged down by the bench, which has been hideous. You know, we all know what's going on with Kirk Neuenheis. Um, Manel hasn't done much. John Mayberry hasn't done much. I mean, Anthony Recker, I think, like, doubled his OPS on Thursday. That was awesome. Against the Cubs, like, literally doubled his OPS um, in one game. But that's probably going to come back down to earth. You don't really feel confident in those late innings when they're going for a pinch hitter that it's going to work out well. But those are, those are, are holes that are much easier to plug, and I think they would be more likely to make a move like that um, in trade come June or July. But it doesn't really solve the overarching problem. That's the guys you're giving 500 plate appearances to over the course of a season. Yeah, I don't see a replacement option just sitting out there unless they want to, like you guys like you guys said, unless they want to eat some money, part with some prospects, they can certainly. I mean, these are all the things that like teams, normal competitive teams, do in a pennant race. <laughs> yeah, but I do feel Mets, like we've just sort of conditioned you know, ourselves aren't. at this point to expect okay. the Mets to act counterproductively to their medium-term goals. That's the truth, though. No, I don't think it's it's wrong. I don't think it's not going to play out that way. I think. You know, it'll be July 15th. The team will be, oh, let's be generous, three games behind the Nationals and in the second wild card spot by a game. There'll be like four or five teams clustered together, and they'll have at least one spot somewhere on the diamond that could use an upgrade, an upgrade that would make a difference over the course of the season in terms of their you know playoff odds or however you want to phrase it. And uh, it's just not going to happen. Well, if that's the situation at the trade deadline, I think you have to give them a chance to make that happen because this general manager hasn't had a really competitive team in his tenure. So I do think part of the reason for that, though, is because they've never shown any willingness to be to trade for the guy. Like they're willing to move pieces off to get prospects of varying like they're good at dealing major league players for a solid return right and that's the thing he's never alderson has never traded for a good major league player that's the the his bugaboo so far but you don't think that the prospect hoarding is is it are they eventually going to make a trade or is it to is it because they want to be a team like the Rays that's or Oakland that's sustainable even on a budget because they have a really deep minor league system. Okay, here's the thing about that. 
if you like we don't do mid-season lists but generally for mid-season lists you don't count anyone that's currently in the majors and we'll throw in like Herrera and Montero who I mean they're going to age off anyway because of service time but you are currently on the major league DL Wilmer Becerra might be the sixth best prospect in the system now like yeah, it's a lot not of guys, but... yeah I mean it's I mean you've got Mats Conforto Nimmo Rosario and Cicchini are the obvious top five in some order probably with Mats at number one. But after that, it's like, this is not, you know, Nemo just had that knee injury too. Who knows what's happening with Marcos Molina, but it probably ends in Tommy John surgery. Um, Dominic Smith has gone backwards. This is no longer a really good farm system. And part of that is because they have graduated major league players like Noah Syndergaard, Kevin Ploiecki, and Dilson Herrera. But those guys are in the majors now. And the team, six games over 500. A lot of them are having meaningful playing time. You know, it's... The idea that this is like a constant pipeline of talent coming up, I think is a little inaccurate. It's a little sort of puffed up. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're saying that there's a window, but these, I mean... When you drive, when those cars got driven off the lot, when Ploiecki got called up, Syndergaard makes his first start. Um, I mean, they, they could still, they're still prospects as far as trade ships go, right? And they're still controllable assets. For, sure, but I'm saying that's it, that's maybe an argument to make a, a bigger deal now, because I think I've harped on this pot on the podcast. Well, not in a while, but I, this past off season, the window for this team is probably the next three years. I mean, are you going to get? another 120 weighted runs created plus season out of Granderson after this one. I'm not saying you'll get it this year, but he looks pretty good at the plate right now. You know, is David Wright ever going to be healthier than he is now? And right now he's not very healthy. Um, and with, you know, they're built primarily on young pitching and we all know how that can end very quickly, or at least to the point where you lose a year from a guy. And when you sort of couple that with the good start, all of a sudden, you know, the, the, it does sort of change the perspective a little bit. You know, maybe you do need to make that big deal for a big bat. And they were always eventually going to have to trade from their pitching surplus, young pitching, for a bat. They just haven't done it now. And now, past Matt's, Assuming Molina is going to get Tommy John surgery. I don't know that for sure, but anytime you see DL strained right elbow, that usually ends poorly. You know, where's that next arm? You know, Jeff Moore and I talked a lot about Robert Gazelman last week, and we both like him, but he's not, you know, he's the third guy in a deal. Yeah, sure. I mean, you're talking. You're still talking Syndergaard or Mats if you really want to make a trade. You deal with one of those guys. I really wanted to trade Wheeler because I thought he was really hyped up, even though he was, wasn't was finding the plate, couldn't get his pitch down low, but now he's on the shelf. So I'd be fine with the right deal. It's just a lot of these guys are that are being traded aren't controllable, and you don't even know if the Mets can afford to pay them. Now yeah, the and that's thing. always what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there, and, that, and if they can't, then they're stuck, because 
You can't well, just... That's the other problem. That's the, the other sort of argument for the short window is they have so much money committed to so few players given what we sort of assume are their budgetary constraints. And this coming off season, they're going to have a bit of an arbitration crunch with a lot of guys getting raises. It's pretty much going to, you know, without another raise in the budget for the team, I mean, those arbitration raises are going to wipe out everything coming off the books, which is basically, you know, Cologne, Murphy, and Blevins, and about $20 million or so. You know, that'll all get swallowed up by Duda's arbitration raise and Ligaris's contractual raise and Nice's contractual raise and, um, you know, in this universe where they tender Dylan G, which they probably won't. Um, but just sort of on its face, that's it's not really changing for them meaningfully in the next couple seasons. Yeah, the good news is that they have... Their pitching is at least controllable, and that if Darno can come back and play like he was playing, and Wright can be at least a shell of his former self, I think they have enough offense to make a push this year. But I mean, Wright, if you want to take sort of the optimistic view, Wright was hitting when he was healthy, which I think was uh, eight games. <laughs> I mean, you said the shoulder was better, so... Yeah, you got that going for injury. it. I, I mean, with with Wright and Darno in the lineup, on paper it looks like... And if, if Cindergaard can be a little better than Dylan G... Yeah, and then, then you have like an average lineup on paper, probably. And their pitching is good. I mean, the, the, the defense needs to be better... I mean, do you are we overreacting to how badly Murphy and Flores have played so far? I, I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence past just 30 games this season that neither of those guys are major league quality defenders up the middle. So no. <laughs> I mean, if 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 that's the case, then the you know then bringing in. Reynolds and moving Flores over kind of makes sense. You need Flores in the lineup because he looks like he he's developing. He's almost only twenty years twenty three. He looks like he's developing into a, a plus bat with the at least with the power so far. So hey, if you want to hang your hat on that, I'm not going to stop you. I just I'm just I'm just saying they can. I mean, hit Flores, it out, if you want to go for the up. sort of what do they? Where is the offense coming from? Flores hitting 25 home runs would be a, a good start. Well, what's he on pace for right now? I mean, Probably I'm not saying he gets runs. 20, but getting 15 out of that position is really good these days. No, it's true. I just think and, people probably yeah. maybe slightly undersell just how bad his defense is there and how much it costs them in terms of both runs and extra pitches thrown. Yeah, I I just I don't know if he's gonna get better yet. I mean, that's up for people of her smarter than I am, and and maybe we just don't know yet because he still is really young, and he they had moved him off that position for a good amount of time, so he hasn't just hasn't played that much shortstop. So I mean, he, he doesn't look like a shortstop, but if he could play it a little better, I I still think. 
and they get those two bats back, I still think the pitching is good enough uh, to carry them to a wild card spot, given a few good bounces. But that doesn't mean anything about the team's future. They certainly not on May eighteenth, right? We'll see where it goes from there. But for now, we'll take a break. When we come back, I will talk with Toby Hyde, the voice of the Savannah Sand Nats, about the Savannah Sand Nats. Joining the show now is the voice the Savannah Sand Nats on radio, the writer of Mets Minor League blog at SNY.TV. Returning to the podcast, Toby Hyde. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. I think we talked this time last year about the Savannah Sand Nats, about the same time the Mets offense was in the midst of the doldrums, and here we are again. Are you saying I'm bad luck? No, I think it's just, this is just what happens every year now. Okay, better. <laughs> But to the Savannah Sand Nats, and we'll start there. Uh, sort of as a general overview, uh, I will put it charitably and say the team is down a bit from a prospect sense this year. Most notably because three of the better prospe- prospects from Brooklyn last year, Johan Urania, Ahmed Rosario, and Marcos Molina, were skipped over Savannah and went straight to the Florida State League. Is there anything more to this than the Mets made an evaluation that those players were ready for the level? Could it have something to do with Grayson Stadium or the fact that it's probably the team's last year in Savannah, or is this just an evaluation thing? Um, yeah, I think, well, I think when it, when it comes to Grayson Stadium, the ballpark always matters, and if you're if you're new to the podcast or you, you've never visited Savannah, this is a hard place to hit, and it's got a huge right field, and it's a place where pitchers can make a lot of mistakes and give up long fly, fly balls, high Louis Sessa, and not get hurt, and then it matters at higher levels. Um, so I think actually Molina is a little different than the, the position player kids. Um, Molina would not have learned anything pitching in Savannah, and I mean that seriously, and you like Molina more than I do. Um I saw a sort of a weird start from him uh, late in August last year. Um, so I, I was pretty confident that Molina was going to start in advance. I just didn't think he had anything to learn from the ballpark. And not, and not just the ballpark, that South Atlantic League hitters weren't going to teach him anything. As far as the other two, and I heard a story, and I'm not sure it's 100% true. But one thing I was told is that uh, Rosario was actually slated to start in Savannah up until – late March. And the thing that changed the Mets thinking was that Philip Evans got hurt in advance day. Uh, he had been slated to play shortstop every day. I don't know if that's true, but if it is, it's interesting on its own merits. Um, you know, were the Mets trying to hide Urania and, and Rosario from advanced day may or from Savannah? Maybe. Um, but it looks pretty weird, and I didn't think either player had done anything statistically to suggest that they were ready for a bump. Frankly, I thought Urania's numbers suggest he was more ready for advanced day than Rosario. Um, I thought the assignments were really weird, and I'm not saying that because I wanted to call their games. Um, I just thought it was weird in terms of development for, for guys who are super young. I, I don't just don't know what, what the rush is with those guys. You know, what the developmental purpose of skipping a level is. Um, you know, if they dominated the South Atlantic League for um, – 
three months, uh, great. Then they can end the advanced day and they're in double A at, at before their 21st birthday, before they're legal to drink a beer. Great. Um, I'm not sure what putting them in the in the Florida State League this year did developmentally. Yeah, Jeff Moore we had on the show last week, and he sort of echoed those comments where it comes down to, yeah, you want to be aggressive, you want to be, you want to challenge guys, but you don't want to set them up to fail. Yeah, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a really weird pair of assignments for both of those players. And Urania, and again, Urania can do. Urania has some bat control, but he had he has. When I saw him in. Brooklyn, you know, he has below average for everyday power. He's kind of a soft body. Um, he needs work at third. I thought that was a, a pretty weird assignment, and I thought the Rosario assignment was pretty weird. You're talking about a guy who's never shown any plate discipline, and you're you're going to give him advanced day hitters, uh, pitchers who can throw, command a fastball and and ideally throw a breaking ball for strikes. I, I thought that, I thought they were both really odd. We'll move on. Different from Molina, I think. I think it's important to separate those three. No, those, I those agree with you. I mean, I think the impression I had gotten to, sort of even early in the minor league season, is they wanted to get and expected Molina to get to Double A by the summer. Now with his elbow issue, that's probably less likely. But they seemed pretty. I mean, it was clear last year that he was far too good to the, for the New York Penn League. Right. The only reason he stayed in Brooklyn that long was was so Brooklyn can could make a playoff run, um, and same deal. And and then actually, um, right. I mean Rosario and and Urania came up for the Nats playoff run, which was all two games. Same with Conforto. You could ask. You could throw Conforto in that boat too. But of course, he should he shouldn't have been in Brooklyn all year long. Yeah, there's a reason I didn't mention him. <laughs> like just just teasing you. All right. So. As for the players that are actually in Savannah this year, uh, one of a, a favorite of mine and somebody that maybe puts a little bit of a, of a lie to the idea that you can't hit home runs in that park is Wilmer Becerra. So what has he shown you so far in 2015? I like Wilmer a lot. Um, he's played really good defense and right. So so you have to start with the body, right? I mean, now- he looks like we're not selling jeans here, but if we were. He would he would move some Levi's. Yeah, six uh, four listed at one ninety. I mean he's bigger and stronger than that now. Um, not, not 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 so much taller than six four, but he's strong. Um, he looks like a big leaguer. Um, he's played great defense in right field. He had one weird night. I don't know if he was up late the night before or something where he just dropped two balls. Um, one he had to he had to go deep into right center field on a ball to track down a ball that's a home run most places, but he he got his glove on it, just cascaded off his glove. So. Um, so he has a couple errors, and, and one, two of them were on the same night. Um, but he's done a great job in right field. He charges well. He retreats well. Um, he does angles well. Um, he's got a plus arm in right field, and, and not just for Mets fans who have watched Curtis Granderson. So the right field looks really good. Um, he's a little bit above average as a runner, and he can put the ball over the wall when he connects. Um, the swing is still inconsistent. Um, he really struggles to identify sliders. Um, uh, you can beat him in, in with fastballs. Scouts aren't, scouts sort of go up and down on him. There's, there's a lot of body there. You know, they like the body, but they're just not sure how to grade the offensive potential right now. And if there's enough, the guys who like him see a little power and see a little bat. And the guys who don't say there's just not enough in the offensive profile, the combination of batting average and, and power, um, to get there in the big leagues. So, you know, if you're going to bet on a guy in the in A ball for the Nats, he's the guy. Um, 
and he's fun to watch and I'm, and I and I hope that that the swing comes along and I hope the pitch recognition comes along. Um but that's really what it, that's really what it's all about for Becerra right now. And he's strong. I mean tonight um uh so Tuesday uh, what are we? It's Monday night. Um the Augusta pitcher, I mean he's not special. Um Santiago Nathaniel Santiago had a had a perfect game through four and a third. And Becerra began the fifth by lining a clean single to left, and then Santiago fell apart, and he walked a bunch of guys and walked home and balked, uh, balked in the inning and walked. He, he and Augusta pitching combined for five walks in an inning, but it all started with a clean line drive from Becerra. Um, he doesn't need to hit the ball in the sweet spot um, to put a line drive into the outfield. He's, he's really strong. Um, the question is whether he can figure out how to, how to cover the inside part of the plate and, and learn to lay off the crap that ends up you know, a foot off the plate and in the dirt. So as far as his sort of plate approach issues, we want to call them that, which I think is fair. How much of it is sort of the inconsistencies in his swing mechanics, which I saw a fair amount of last year in Kingsport. And how much of it is me just doesn't pick up spin so good, which I also saw a fair amount of in Kingsport. I think both are things are issues, right? It's, it's the, the mechanics feed the approach and the approach feeds the mechanics. Um, that they're, they're both things that he needs to address um, separately, um, but but of course they they help each other. So yeah, I think both are on the to do list. Um, it's not like he can't he can't you know solve he can't solve just one of those. He has to solve both of them. It's not and it's not like learning to recognize spin will 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 solve. Um, some of the inconsistent hand path issues. Um, he's still doing this thing, and, and it's I see it in a ball. I don't see it much in the uh, big leagues because big league hitters are, are better than this. He did, some some hitters. And I used to see this with uh, Corey Vaughn. Used to have the most exaggerated thing, like they spread out on two strikes because I think it'll keep him shorter to the ball. And it's like if there's a two strike thing swing that you think keeps you better shorter to the ball, you know what? You should probably use that with zero and one strike too. Um, and Becerra did that for about a week this year. So, I mean, you talk about mechanics, he just needs to find what works for him. Is he there yet? Nope. But, um, yeah, he's got to do both. I remember seeing him in BP and Kingsport and like, oh, he's like trying some different things with his footwork and his stance in the box. That's fine. Mm -hmm. And he did it in games and I'm like, no, no, just, that's (laughs) not what you're supposed to do in the game. Right. (laughs) Pick one of them for now. You can change it later, but point out the same at bat or at bat to a bat, just you're going to get out of your game. Yep. And he's doing less of that. But also I watch from up top the press box at Grayson's in a weird spot. So I see it. Maybe I see less of it. It's, it feels, seems like he's doing less of it. So the other big name in Savannah, such as it is, is uh, the Mets' third round pick from two years ago, Casey Meisner, who's off to a pretty good start considering it's his first uh, full season ball assignment that he was considered a bit of a of a project when he was drafted. Uh, what have you seen in Meisner's starts so far this year? Good beard. Really good, really good reddish beard. Now, they've loosened that up now, so you can, they can do right, whatever right. facial the new, hair they want. Yep, the new rules are you can do whatever you want, it's just got to look good. So, not that, you're not allowed to look like uh, Bobby Purnell or Kirk Neonice. It's pretty much the rules. I was going to say, the lines for like looking good as far as baseball beards go is pretty... Uh, it's not a hard bar to get over. It's malleable, and it's up to the manager, of course. Of course. But a lot of those guys appreciate being able to have a goatee and doing, you know, old baseball guy things. 
Um, right. So, so anyway, so, you know, like you look at Steph Sable, which is a, a name I'm sure only the minor league watchers, you know, come out and he's got the full beard. It looks, it's a big full beard. It looks good. Anyway. So Meisner has this like red thing, kind of a Lincolnish. Um, I don't know. Hey, he remind he's tall. He's slender. He's Texan. Um, he can touch 94. He works 89, 91, uh, most nights. Um, he's been hittable the last couple starts. He's battled. He, 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 um, there was a start uh, last weekend where I, I didn't think he was going to make it out of the third inning. He's just giving up loud contact in the first couple innings, and somehow he skated through with a couple runs allowed um, and worked into the sixth. And you know, it's in the in the in the in a ball. It's always complicated. You're like, do you want to give the kid credit for finding a way to get outs against the Lexington Legends, or do you want to be concerned that the Legends hit some balls hard against him? And either approach is fair. Um, you know, a change up and a, a curve. Um, it's it's all a little soft. You know, he's got a he's got a chance to pitch in the big leagues, but it's it, it's he need, he needs he needs work, and it's all a little flat for me. Despite he's he's huge. He's I mean everybody the Nats pitching the Nats the Nats starting rotation is like six eight six nine six ten, and Meisner's the shrimp at six seven. Uh, Materius Arias is six ten. Brad Wick is six eight. It's nuts. So what's the biggest area of improvement for Meisner right now? Um, I want to see him give up less hard contact on the fastball, actually. Um, less hard contact generally. Um, but the last couple starts, he's just given, it's just been loud. Um, and Grayson will hide a lot of that, um, as any pitcher who, who's worked there will tell you. Um, but I, th- I think he's got to be careful not to be, uh, not to fall into that as a security blanket. Um, you know, there's a level at which you want to trust your stuff, but he, he needs to, he needs to be care um, needs to be careful there. His fastball at present day is not good enough that he can just chuck it over the middle of the plate. So he needs to get in and start moving it around a little bit better. Because it's not a, I mean, it's not a plus. It doesn't grade as a plus pitch now, right? No. So um, I, I guess that was an, a good follow up question to that. Is there was sort of a, you know, he was drafted as a projectable righty, and we all know that sometimes projectable players don't always end up projecting. But is there? I mean, obviously he can touch ninety four. Is there a chance he sits more ninety two to ninety four with some, you know, physical strength? add or just general growth or mechanic tweaks in theory right i mean in theory, in theory he's, yeah. he's still big but he's he's really lean i think he he just seems like he's the you know you look at that body now and it still seems pretty lean um he's still pretty young but he's also been at this now for two years right so in theory he should have spent the last two years like lifting weights a little bit um so it's not to say he's never going to, um, never going to get stronger and all that, um, but it's it's just um, you know he's twenty years old. Sure, he can fill out a little bit. You know, Stephen Matz is a good example, right? Matz actually added a couple of ticks of velocity, sort of in terms of base level velocity. Um, after he came back from that Tommy John, and it wasn't about 
the Tommy John surgery, it wasn't like they put in a bionic ligament, but in the years when he was down, he went from being a young senior draft out of high school to a 21-year-old guy who had grown up physically and mentally and had, had also lifted weights for a couple of years. Um, I'm not arguing that Meisner should blow out his elbow and, and sit for a year, um, but it hasn't happened yet. Could it still? I suppose, right? Guys, 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 velocity goes up all the time or goes up. Some guys velocity goes up um, at this age. He's only 20 now. Um, there are certainly guys whose velocity grows during college, right? This is the, the street at the at the extreme end. Steven Strasburg was was unheralded coming out of high school, relatively speaking, and added a bunch at San Diego State. Jonathan Gray added it in a year, basically. Right, right. It happened. I mean. This is the college age, and it happens at this age. If he gets to 22 and he's still 89, 91, it's not going to happen. But, yeah, in the next couple of years, it could happen. So so that's 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 my wishy way of saying it hasn't happened yet, but it could still in theory. I get the feeling he's not like a – it doesn't feel like he's using the full body well. But it's hard when you're that big to to, to trust, to really get a lot – I feel like it's easier for the six four guys to to really use all their levers. The Jacob Degrom, the Stephen Matz, you know, the Matt Harvey size guys to uncork everything. So at six seven, it becomes really long. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of levers there. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the only one I can think of that really sort of makes it work is like Alex Meyer, and he's kind of a freak of nature. He's also been really hittable this year, right? He has. That's the thing. It's it flattens out. I think. Yeah, you talk about. I saw it sort of with Noah Syndergaard too. They always talk about, oh, tall guys get more plane on their fastball. Well, not true. It's not really. <laughs> I mean, Syndergaard had to use that two seamer a lot. Still, is using it more. So we'll move back into the Nats lineup and a a new arrival in Savannah in the last two weeks or so. Mets. Fourth round pick from last year, Udo Garcia. Who I was a little surprised didn't start there straight out of uh, camp this March, but after a month or so and an extended, he's popped up there and gotten off to a hot start. How has he looked uh, both in the field and at the plate? I know I saw a picture of him from spring. He looked like a completely different human being. Yeah, he gave me a funny cryptic answer. I was like, what were you doing in extended spring training? He's like, I was working on some things. I was like, you want to tell me what you're working around? He's like, nope. I mean, he said offense and defense. I was like, right. Yeah. That's, it's like <laughs> it's like Chris Bryant working on his defense in Triple uh, A. Yeah, I was like, thanks. You were working on offense and defense, um, right? And then the, and the the reason he looks better, and this is great. I had him on the pregame show the other day um, in Savannah. He he hit he he lifted. He did all the he did all the normal stuff. He hit he 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 swung a bunch, and he also boxed. He said he'd spent a ton of time in the boxing gym, um, hitting the bags, the the speed bag and the heavy bag. Um, and it was fun and sort of the, 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 the cliche for, for people who are starting a workout regime is you have to find something you like and you'll stay with it. He said he loved it. Um, right. I saw him in Kingsport and the body was soft. And he laughed. He, he laughed about it when I asked him. He's like, yeah, I was, I was not in good shape last year. Um, and yeah, I mean now the, the chest looks huge. His arms look huge. So he's boxing and he thinks it's helped his mobility at third. And I think he, I think he's right. He made some, he's made some nice pickups in the last week in Savannah. He showed that he can move to his left and do the, the third baseman sort of pick up on the ball behind him and spin, um, that that you see a lot. 
Um, he looked aw- he looked unsure. He got himself in trouble Monday night on a backhand where he just froze and he let the ball eat up, eat him up. And that's uh, of all the plays that third basemen have to make. That is one that gives young third baseman fits. I don't have to tell you how many. I mean, um, how 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 much uh, young third baseman struggle with that backhand ball almost right at him. Um, where they get caught, are they gonna are gonna sit on it, sit on it, and wait? Can they charge? Um, but anyway, he looks he, he's in much better shape. So so credit to Udor Garcia for getting himself in better shape, um, and and it's helped him defensively. Um, the the swing is he's and so he's big and he's strong. He was strong last year, sort of in the sense of like big kid strong. Um, no, I'm serious. He was he was strong last year. This is big kid strong. Um, now he's strong and like young man strong like really strong. Um, and when he connects, it goes there. This is a weird swing. Have you, you've seen the swing. Yeah. He does like, he's still doing like the double toe tap thing. That's not what bugs me anyway. Um, yeah, a little bit he starts his hands for, for your listeners. He starts his hands inside the back shoulder. And so, um, he, he's pretty, he's pretty vertical. Um, by the way, the Mets just won a game. Um, they did. You're going to ruin it because we're, this is going in the middle of the podcast. I was trying not to talk about them using John Mayberry against Trevor Rosenthal instead of uh, Noah Syndergaard, but it worked out. So, okay, um, <laughs> right. Results based analysis. Yes, the Mets won. So, what are you complaining about? It's like the end of the podcast. I'm going to be worried about Jair's familia with first and third and one out in the ninth, and now we're <laughs> recording this last. So it's the other fourteen. We could we could rip that up. Yeah, it's fine. It's a win. Um. Any, anyway, um, you gotta love Daniel Murphy sliding head first for no reason too <laughs> on a Murphy-ist. forced play. <laughs> it's the Murphyist. What do you want? He's the Murph. Yeah. Um, whatever. He just thought that was the fastest way to get there because he's Murph. Um. Uh, you back to Udo Garcia. Um. Yeah. The, the, so so he ends up loading his hands while the front foot is walking forward. Um. You don't see a ton of guys doing it in the big leagues anymore. Uh, my old friend Mike Newman uh, used to be a scout in the Scali, although he's not writing baseball anymore. Claims that Manny Ramirez did a version of this in the big leagues. That's true, but Manny had like preternatural balance, and he was a hitting savant. I mean, Manny was a genius as a hitter. Um, so I'm always a little concerned with this Udor swing because he's got a time. So so the classic is you get your front foot down. You're loading, you know, you've load and then you get your front foot down. So it's like it's all these things happening in sequence. And Garcia's in a spot where he's trying to load his hands and get his front foot down at the same time. Um, and it just if you're trying to time two, two things at once, it seems like it's harder than one thing. Right. Um, so I'm always a little concerned by that. But he's hit some real balls really hard the last week. Um, he went as as hard as it is to hit a home run at Grayson Stadium. He went out of the place on Sunday on his birthday. How good is that? Give yourself a birthday present. Um, and he hit some balls hard on Monday and he actually walked twice too. He had had his first week, first week and a half as a natty at 11 strikeouts and one walk. He wasn't doing much in the way of plate approach. Um, so, you know, first two weeks, um, he's strong. Uh, he pulls balls with authority. I don't think I've seen him hit anything hard to left field yet. Um, it's all been pull approach. Um, so he's got a lot of work to do too, but he's sort of interesting. He went to this tiny junior college in um, El Paso, El Paso Community College, and like he'd never played a game in front of fans before. When he got to Kingsport, like that was new. 
Like last summer, he was he was like excited to be on the field for you know national anthem in front of fans, and like that's cool um, in a way, right? Um, and now he gets the slightly larger fans at, at Historic Racing Stadium and around the South Atlantic League, where he's you know four and four and eight, somewhere between you know a thousand and fifty five hundred a night um, around the South Atlantic League. You know, so it, it, it's a process for Garcia. He's a long way away, but you know you. You'd look at Becerra's body, and he's big and strong, and, and Garcia, um, strong, and and he's got this, the swing. We'll see if the swing works. I'm not sure it will, and he's got he's got work to do on his approach too. But it looks like if if Monday is an indication that he's starting to sort of settle in, and he's over the first week excitement. But that's where we are with him because he's only been around for a couple weeks, uh, not even two weeks, two full weeks yet. One more name in Savannah I want to cover. My two thousand. Oh, I know. My two thousand fifteen sleeper who looks nothing like Homer Becerra or Eudor Garcia <laughs> uh, physically, and that's Luigi Guillorme. And I guess we'll just start here. How has the Luigi Guillorme shortstop experience been for you? Oh, it's great. He he can really pick it. You know that. I do. Um, he he covers more ground than he can throw. It's actually interesting. Um, and I saw this in Kingsport, and it's still the case. He tracks down balls in the five-six hole, far away from first base, that he just can't make the throw on because no, you know, you would have to have Andrelton Simmons is our <laughs> right. Um, but I'll tell you a great story about him. So I did this interview with him, and he's from Venezuela, and and so guess guess what shorts up he grew up idolizing. Slick defender. Used to play for the Cleveland Indians. No, Vizquel, yeah. Of course. Um, and um, so I'm sitting down before a ball game talking with a scout buddy of mine, a um, guy who I've known for a couple, for a couple of years now. And, and the scout says to me, you know, who you remind, you know who his actions remind me of a little bit? And, and you know how these conversations go. Sometimes I can guess. And I was like, no, tell me. And he goes, Omar Vizquel. I was like, funny you say that, you know, that's, that's like not an accident. Um, he grew up idolizing him. Um, he can look, your can really pick it. Um, he's, he's, he's smooth going up the middle. The, the, the thing about your that's so good is his transfer from when the ball approaches him to out of his hand is really fast. I, I don't know how he does it, but it's it, like, it's you just, almost think it's like too fast. It just comes out, it, yeah. It comes out in a in a. It, it's, you know, look. There there are guys. You know, you mentioned Andrew Simmons. There are guys who are faster than him on a straight line. A lot of guys. His, his speed isn't special. He's maybe an average runner now. If you're being, he's, he's he's no better than an average runner anyway. And I don't think he's much worse if he's if he's really trying to get down the line. Um, but it's it's that transfer that's really spectacular. Um, you know, sometimes he can get himself tr- in trouble going a little too fast um, because he can get the ball out of his from pickup off the ground to out so fast. And that's something that that uh, Nats manager Jose Lajera has worked with him on is to make sure that he's in balance and in rhythm um, because sometimes it almost does come out too fast and he's not he's not in rhythm. Um, and so that's that's something they've been working on uh, recently. But, yeah, he's brilliant at shortstop. He's really, really good. Um He's he's we you know it's 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 funny the Nats sort of alternated great shortstops with shaky shortstops the last few years in Savannah, um, but it's 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 like it's like watching Wilfredo Tovar but 
but in some ways maybe more fun because Guillermo seems to really enjoy playing short. Um, he he made pick- yeah, I actually talked to him last year a little bit in Kingsport, and I asked him about sort of the, the, the transfer and the quick hands thing. And the way he described it to me is like his father wouldn't let him play outside in Venezuela, so all he would do is just sit inside and throw a ball off a wall as fast as he could and get it out as fast as he could. Well, that makes an awful lot of sense. I hadn't asked him that specific question. That's good. I'm going to steal that and use that on the on air. There you go. It's so he would throw. Sure. The, so you throw like a tennis ball against the wall. Yeah, yeah, and just that's all he'd work on is just his hands, like soft hands, quick hands. That's it. Well, that was time well spent. He made a he made a play last year in King. See, my mom used to my mom used to say no throwing balls in the house. Yeah, mine too. She said, "Go outside, go throw a ball off the wall." He made a play where he literally almost caught like a. It was one of those plays where he was shifted over to the second base side, ball off the end of the bat, like down the left field line. He almost made a a sliding catch about probably two seventy five up the left field line from the second base side of. Uh, right, and that speaks to something else: is that he's not a speedster, but his anticipation, his, his instincts is, are amazing. He's like, really just, good, and he has um, that sort of like. You start talking about the shortstop as the general of the infield. He made a play too, where he was like he like back pick. It was a rundown between first and second, and he back picked the guy that was like dancing off third a little bit. Yep. To, to be able to a change your body direction that fast, b make that throw, and c have the balls to make that throw in that right. spot. You know he does he does everything you'd want to see out of a shortstop um, defensively. So let's talk about the bat. Um, he's actually hit. He's sort of if you just look at the at the at the triple slash, he's improved year over year since he was drafted. But he's carrying a point zero zero eight ISO this year. Yeah. Which is I, I knew we'd hits, have to, one I, double. I knew we'd have to have this talk. Right. Like the approach is good, he's making contact. It's lots of singles and walks. You want to give the slash line since you're looking at it? Yeah, yes. then he had that night off Monday. Three seventeen, three ninety, three twenty five. Right. So he is. He hits from the left side. It's a little bit open. The swing all works. Okay. This is. This is. This is different than Becerra, and this is who needs to pick a swing. Um, who's and this is different than Garcia, where he has a swing, and I'm just worried about the complicated timing issues. Um, Guillerme has a has a nice looking swing. He's a, it's a left handed swing. Um, he's just tiny. You know, he's he's five ten maybe. That's what he's listed at. Maybe, right. You know, and he's he's light. He played, you know, um, he just doesn't have a lot of oomph there. He's a good, he has good pack control. Um, he's a really good bunter, which an A-ball carries some of those hits. Um, and he is terrific. He really has terrific back control. Um, he picked up a bunch of hits early in the year on hit and runs where they would put the shortstop in motion to cover and... He would have the enormous hole on the left side, and he would just bounce a ball through the left side on what, where where the shortstop should have been standing. Uh, Keith Hernandez wants him up now, then. Oh, I mean, I, I actually made some jokes on air about about how like Guillermo makes makes Hernandez's heart flutter, um, with because of his hit and run abilities. Um, but then you know, then it was funny. Teams started sending their 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 second baseman to cover because his approach was so dictated on, on slapping the ball on the left side. It was very he, much when I saw him in Kingsport, it's just going to slap it into the 5.5 hole and either yep. try to beat it out or it gets through. Right, and I've had that conversation with him. That's what he wants to do. That's who he wants to be at the plate. He, fe- he like if he thinks if he's 
if he if he's pulling the ball on the right side, he's done something wrong. And that's maybe wrong is the right word, but he's trying to go middle away. That's that's what he does. I think his what's he have one double, two one double, double, yes, yeah. Well, the one double came down the third base line. Yeah. I mean, he he slapped it past the third baseman. Um, you know, so does that profile play? I, you know, I don't. Probably not. Uh, you know, of the let's see, of the thirty-eight hits he has, I would wager that ten didn't leave the infield. Um, and and I didn't count tonight. Um, you know, there there are a bunch of bunts. There's some, you know, a ball defense, right? Second baseman tracks it down behind second base and doesn't make a play. In the big leagues, they'll have position charts, and and those are outs. You know this. Yes. Um, so does he do enough offensively to start? Probably not. Does he do en- enough offensively to play in the upper minors? No question. Um, and then it's up to him to get a little stronger so he can do a little bit of damage or else he becomes Wilfredo Tovar where it's just, it's just a, it's just an empty batting average for, for as, as long as it is. But I love Guillermo. You know, Guillermo is a smart kid. You and I both talked to him. And I think we th- we see how on is he's a smart kid. He he, he gets baseball. Um, he grew up around baseball. Um, and um, you know his, he grew up around baseball in Venezuela and in Miami, which is a great area for amateur baseball in this country. Um, so you know he he just he honestly needs to get in the weight room. And it's weird because any weight he adds will take away from what he does best, which is play shortstop. Um. But if he's going to hit some, he needs to get a little stronger. And that's still the case. And that's been the case since since I saw him for the first time last year in Kingsport. Yeah, I was talking about Because it. It, it just doesn't work to be this slappy in the big leagues. I don't think there's anyone who's that slappy. Um, maybe a young – and Mets fans are going to hate to hear this. Maybe a long, young Luis Castillo. But he was a, he was a 70 runner, a young right, Luis Castillo. Yeah. Not by the time he got He'd to the He'd give Mets. you 45 stolen bases a year or two. Right. So it's really if tough he, to be that guy that walks in ten percent of your plate appearances if you can't. Well, and and also to the point with Guillerme is that is that a young Luis Castillo was stealing base all the time. So when he was on first, he could turn it into an extra base, and and Guillerme is not going to have that kind of speed. It doesn't have that kind of speed. So does the profile play? You know, it depends. It depends what he it depends, but. Um, the defense keep, is going to keep him employed for a long time. Yeah, I was talking to a scout in Kingsport, and he's asked me, like, sort of who I like best on the on the on the Kingsport team. And I'm like, or like, who had the who do you think's the best major leaguer here? And I'm like, it's Kingsport. It's I'm not I'm not, I'm not going to put <laughs> bets on on you know who's a major leaguer in in the Appy League. Um, you know, absence like a you know a big first round draft pedigree or something you like that. Take Andrew Church. <laughs> Sorry, cheap joke. Um. But you know, I'm like, look, you know, Becerra is the Becerra is the best prospect on this team, which he was. But uh, you know, I know Lee Yormi is going to play in AAA, and after that, it's just, you know, if you want to talk about a guy that's going to have a shot at the major leagues, give me the plus shortstop glove. Mm-hmm. That's a good base to start from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no argument here. Like, you know, if Becerra makes the majors, he's probably like you know, Becerra is like the impact bat. You know, Becerra could be a 25 home run right fielder. That's maybe or maybe he, or maybe he's he's the guy off the bench who just hits lefties, you yeah. know. Or that. There, there's there's a downside outcome of of he's a good defensive right fielder 
who never quite puts it all together offensively, but you keep him around it because he run he can run into one. Yeah. Many or he tops out in double A. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. One hundred percent possible. Yeah. But I just think you know Guillaume is just those guys play forever. Sure. Like sure. Wilfredo Tovar is a good example of that. Right. Everyone, you know, uh, uh, Omar Quintanilla, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and all of a sudden, then then he's got veteran status, and, and we we joked about this earlier off the mic. You know, it, you know, you just keep showing up to spring training, and then all of a sudden you're you're gone from like a fringe roster guy to like manager's favorite, and and then you, and then you just make a team for a couple of years. Now Quintanilla, to be fair, was a first round draft. He was, yeah. He was a big. He had a huge college World Series that year too, didn't he? When he got picked. Yeah, monster, monster, monster. Uh, I don't know about monster prospect, but uh, the A's paid him a bunch of money. Jeez, uh, oh four, I think. Um, Sounds right. Oh three or oh four. He was in advanced day in oh four. Uh, he probably oh three draft. Oh three or oh four. Anyway. Yes, um, that's two thousand third, two thousand thirty third pick in the two thousand three draft. Thank you. Um. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like, he's a – anyway, so so that's, you know, that's sort of like Guillerme's ideal career path, right, is you hang around some spring training, whether it's Port St. Lucie or, you know, Dunedin or wherever, and, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, some manager takes a shine to him, and then he's on the roster for a couple of years. And so, that could happen. So you want to guess, uh, now that I have Omar Quintanilla's baseball reference page up, this thing that happens. So he had that, that – those random – 80 good plate appearances in 2012 when they ended up trading him to Baltimore. But what would you guess his, other than that 2012 stint with the Mets, his highest OPS plus in the majors? For a full season? No, for any, even a partial season. Right, right. So so for for one season with, one, one, one piece of one season with a team. Yes. Uh, outside of 2012. It was 101 with the Mets that year. He had 257, 350, uh, 371. Sixty-nine. Good, you're close. It was seventy-three. I almost said seventy-two. <laughs> I thought it'd be funnier to pick a number in the sixties. So, two thousand five. His first taste of the majors, two thousand five, in Coors. In two thousand five, God, he hit two nineteen two seventy. Back when Coors was Coors, he hit two nineteen two seventy two forty two. So bad. But you know he's. Let's see. Aren't they? Oh, I'm looking at his. No, I'm looking at his major league page. They're not showing up. No, they're because I'm looking. I'm looking for the the playing time. I want to see if he has six checking, full years in, but check, he has to. Checking out what he was did in Colorado Springs. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, is Guillermo that guy? I mean, he might even be a little better on the top end defensively. Um, but by the time he gets to the big leagues, he'll be a couple of years older. He'll have lost a quarter of a step or whatever it is. And when Quintanilla um, came up, he had a reputation as a plus shortstop. Like a right. Really so, good short. I mean, by the time he know, got to the Mets, obviously that was not the case. But in his 20s, certainly. You know, I, I just don't know that it works offensively for Guillermo. I hope it does. I hope it does for all these guys. Um, and, and he has an idea at the plate. He's got a plan. He walks a bunch. Um, he just needs to... To to get stronger, yeah. Just is one of those guys where even you, even if he can gap one every once in a while, right? Right. We're not talking. <laughs> we're not talking about over the wall power. Here. No, it's. I mean, it's going to be. It's going to be twenty game power. But he just needs to be able to hit, you know, fifteen doubles a year. 
Right. I, I mean, it's tough because it's one of those weird profiles where you expect when you see a shortstop glove that good that he's going to be a plus runner. So at least like run himself into some doubles or can't do it or you know steal twenty bases a year. Nope, maybe more. But that's the funny thing about Guillaume is he's literally the best shortstop I've ever seen. That's a below average runner. Yep. Like, it's kind of insane to watch. Like, how often do you see, what, four-run, 55-arm, potential seven-glove shortstops? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, doesn't happen a whole lot. He's, it, like, he's one of those guys where I look at the profile and I almost... It's such a unique profile that I, I feel almost uncomfortable, like, projecting any potential future on him. I mean, he obviously has a potential future in the high minors, but I just, I don't, it's just so tough to pin down for me. Right. He needs to get to a point where it doesn't take all of his body weight to hit a soft line drive into right center field, which is where he is now. I mean, you're talking like max effort sway to get it to, to, to do that. Yeah, guys like that. I mean, that even Tovar has like, can occasionally pop one over a guy's head. He's gotten a little thicker as he's aged. That's true. I mean, that right? That's the then that's the Meisner thing, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and every every dude listening to this podcast above the age of eighteen knows that they got a little thicker after after that point, right? I did not actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. I, I put on. Well, I mean, that's not true. I'm probably ten pounds heavier than I was in college. So sure. Um, so yeah, Guillermo is fun to watch defensively, and and he has a plan at the plate. I mean, he does all the things that that you teach, right? I mean, if you talk to, I don't know if you know uh, Lamar Johnson, the Mets hitting minor league hitting coordinator, and and, and the thing he first pre- and he was in the big leagues for a, a minute last year with the Mets in this. Remember when they went to that double hitting coach role yeah. and hudging yes. the fire and all that stuff. Um, but you know, Lamar or Johnson, who I like a lot, his first order of business for guys in a ball is. First, they have to learn their own swing. And who are they and what do they do? And Guillaume has that. He's, he sort of is, an, and this is, this is also speaks to, to your point about him being a funny prospect. He has a lot of, he, he knows what he wants to do. He has a, an unusually consistent approach for a, double, for a single A hitter. I suppose it's no surprise anyone who's listening to this show knows we spent well over half this segment talking about Luis Guillaume compared to the rest of the Savannah roster. But I will let you go with this. So the overall state of the Mets system right now, they've, uh, they're looking to graduate probably, well, they'll certainly graduate four or five of their top ten, depending on uh, whether Steven Matz gets enough uh, service time this year to shed his rookie eligibility by the sort of arcane rules we use of determining who's a prospect and who's not anymore. Uh, You know, Marcos Molina could be headed for Tommy John surgery. Brandon Nemo's had his own recent knee injury. What does this system look like in a year, given that they have no first-round pick? And if you look sort of up and down the system this year, there's really not a name that's sort of taken a big step forward yet. Granted, it's May, but what does this system look like? Uh, it looks like waiting around on Conforto and Dom Smith to hit, I guess. 
Um, and Conforto's done a little more of that than than Dom earlier this year. Um, yeah, I, you know, I made this joke on Twitter. I, I think it was in an at, at reply. Right, winning game, winning big league games is better than having a better a good prospect, a good farm system ranking. Right. Yes. All, even though you and I have spent more hours than our wives and girlfriends would care to admit writing about prospects um, in the last decade. Um, Winning big league games is more important than than a nice prospect ranking. Um, and if you've graduated in consecutive years, um, Matt Harvey and Zach Wheeler and Noah Syndergaard in your big league rotation, that's also doing that's also the point, right? And a and a starting catcher in Darno, um, and a starting second baseman in Dilson Herrera. But after that, yeah, the system thins out a lot, right? Triple A right now is Steven Matz and um, Matt Reynolds, who's probably a – I still think he's mostly a big league backup. Maybe he's a – maybe he's a, a, a big league shortstop in sort of a average fielder and he'll, he'll make enough contact that you can live with that. Um, but that's like it at AAA, right? Did I forget anybody? There's nothing else there. Cesar Pueo has been hurt all year. I, who knows what's going on yeah, there? Yeah, no one actually knows what's going on with that, I have a feeling. What's that? Whatever's going on with that, it's not what's going on with that. <laughs> right, I mean, you know, maybe he's just pouting that, and he's just collecting like a big league paycheck for, for a couple months. Who who knows? Right, because he was going to get outrighted. Yeah, now he's on the 60, so. Right, right. So there's a lot of weird, you know, but after, and then double A, you've got Nimmo. You already mentioned him. And the knee thing. You know, I'm not sure how serious it is. I haven't. Um, heard officially, so I, I'm not sure with Nimmo. But right, you're sort of waiting on the next hitter to become the flag the flag bearer. Um, and even which, the, the the pitching all of a sudden is it's sort of started this year, but by next year the pitching is going to be very thin in the system. Now again, if you have, like you said, sure. if you've graduated five pitchers in the last three years, look like potential number threes are better. It doesn't. You, you don't really care about that part. Right. That's the point. But, but no, that's absolutely right. Um, when you look down between the, from from mats, there's a enormous yawning chasm to the next level. Um, Gabriele Noah is I don't have the number in front of me. He's still not really missing bats in Double A. He is not. Um, and I'm sorry. It, you know, in in 2015, if the the big league average is is basically 20% strikeout rate, and if you're if you're below 18 or something in double a that is a red flag that makes a bull angry right and it's just yeah fine maybe he maybe he goes into the bullpen or whatever but you just it just doesn't work in the modern game to give up that much contact um because big league hitters uh put some of those over the wall and you can shift all you want but some of those find holes um and what's the strikeout right now? It's it's a quarter of the season, so you know you don't want to go crazy about it. But that's stuff, like around fifteen percent, I think. That stuff stabilizes at about one hundred fifty plate appearances. And look, the the slider still comes and goes. They don't. Sure, have it's him, always been soft. Yep, yeah, they don't have him throwing his changeup a ton. I yeah, think probably because they want him throwing the slider. The slider's um, always been sort of soft, and and so I just don't. So so anyway, so yeah, I mean the system the system takes a. a it was sort of crept up into the top. It was certainly in the top 10 in all the rankings this year. Um, because there was, because there was Steven Matz and Noah Syndergaard at the top with 
what looked like some depth in position players and uh, the different prospect, different rankers liked different hitters more or less than others, whether, whether it's a Pilecki or Nimmo, Dom Smith or Conforto um, coming into this year. I, I had them ranked as Nimmo Conforto, uh, uh, Ploiecki, Nimmo Conforto, um, Cicchini and then Smith. Um, you know, and you're sort of waiting for one of those guys to actually look like a big league hitter so far, or, or an impact big league piece. Cicchini, I mean, I don't say impact big league piece, but Cicchini, I think, is maybe... Cicchini, Cicchini could play in the big leagues. Yes. Um, I don't have a, a... that. That's something that I saw last year, and it, we didn't talk about him. And, you know, look, it's not a sexy profile. He can play second, he can play short, he can put the bat on the ball. Um, he's sort of like Guillaume with a little less defense and a lot more bat. Um, because he's put in the time in the weight room. Um, Cicchini is a guy who, who really has gotten stronger since the Mets drafted him. Um, you know, he's not, I don't think he's an, I don't think he's an impact big leader. He hasn't shown that, but he's gotten better with the stick since he's, since he's got there. He makes a lot of contact. He doesn't strike out. Um, and he'll, he can put one over the wall occasionally, you know, and, uh, look, he's, he's not, who's a, who's a shortstop. He's, he's no young JJ Hardy. Right, right, thank you. You know, but it, but but he might get he'll get to 10 and and you know, so whether that's a that's a starting shortstop because you don't have anyone better in your system or uh a really nice bench piece who plays a couple days a week, he's a big leader. I mean, by that standard, Wilmer Flores is already more than halfway there, so. Yeah, but you can't even play shortstop. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure your listeners are sick of that joke. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know. So, so that's really where the system is. Is they're waiting for one of these guys to look, to to look like the next um, flag, the the next standard bearer, right? Because because there, there's no pitching standard bearer, especially if Molina's hurt. And I still think Molina's a bullpen arm. I think yeah, probably. But that's that. no fun. We disagree on that. I think you know. No, I mean, I think he's probably a relief arm. It's just no fun to put that grade on him. There's there's some chance he's Tyson Ross, but sure. what is that's a ten percent chance yeah. he's Tyson Ross. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and if you're betting, if you're betting on every low arm slot right hander who, who comes through the little minors as, as Tyson Ross, well, I'll I'll bet on seeing him in the seventh inning, maybe. And you you felt a lot better about him as a prospect before he went on the deal with a right elbow strain given those mechanics right that's your worst fear about him and, and now he's going to be he's not young for a, he's, he's 22 i think no molina marcos oh no he's young i'm sorry Mar- yeah, he was one of the youngest players in the league this year okay so so he's got the time in theory to build up innings but no you're confusing him with louis mateo who was old and also had a bad arm slot low arm slot and bad mechanics <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So, and he also had weird bodies in his elbow, right? That was yeah. the thing that the nullified his first signing. So, I think um, you know, uh, was it the first signing with the elbow or was the first signing the he was using a different birth certificate. There, there were two was, signings. Maybe, yeah. both, maybe both. I think there was one. There was one of each. I don't remember which one came first. Anyway, that's where the system is right now. Or, or, or coming. I mean, as soon as Matt's graduates, there is no clear number one. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who think Brandon Nimmo's a tweener. Um, I, I've seen him at his best play center field, but for the Mets, he's not playing center field over Juan Magaris. And then does that bat carry to a corner? Dep- 
depends, but he's looking, he's, he could well be tweenerish. Um, you know, is Conforto a star level bat and left? I I didn't see it when I saw him in Brooklyn. I saw a capable bat and left with, you know, moves okay, moves enough to play left field, but he's not going to give you anything defensively. Um, so, you know, then, then you've got to hit a, a whole bunch of home runs, a lot of home runs, right? To be a, to be a, sort of headline guy, and he got off to the great start, Conforto, and I think there are a lot of guys, there's certainly a lot of Mets fans who, who after the end of April were like, promote this guy, promote this guy, and he hasn't hit anything in May. Um, you know, he's, you know, at the danger of playing small sample size games, on, on as, as the calendar turned to May, Conforto in 21 games in April hit 313 with a 566 slugging. Six home runs in April, right? Uh, 12 walks, five of which were intentional and against 14 strikeouts. So, so, so as the calendar turned to May, Mad fans were like, what is he still doing in St. Lucie? And I said, well, you know, let pitchers see him again. 16 games in May, he's hitting 238 with no home runs. Again, it's two weeks, right? You don't want to go crazy over two weeks, good or bad. Um... Two seventy nine and two seventy nine on base percentage in May. So, you know, is Conforto the the star level bat? Is he going to be the the number one prospect in the system next year? Maybe, but he should probably hit something in the next couple months. I do feel like Ploiecki went through a similar thing like this in Savannah, where he was just. I mean, he shouldn't have started in Savannah, but that's neither here nor there. Um, where he just went off that first month in Savannah and then cooled down a little bit, and he got promoted in the second half, and he hit in St. Lucie, too, and it didn't really end up mattering a ton in the end. Right, and the Mets actually don't care. The Mets are not um, dogmatic about making a guy hit the week before he gets promoted. Um, they feel like if a guy's skills are there. But the Conforto I saw last year in, in Brooklyn sometimes had trouble with velocity on his hands. Um, and that stuff you expect power hitters to gobble up. Um, we'll see. I haven't seen him in game action this year, so um, I, I'm, I'm sure at some point I will drive down. I need, well, I'm not sure. I hope to drive down I need 95 and see him. Um, but you know that that's anyway. That's that's where I think the system is. Right? Is waiting waiting for one coming into this year. You had the the, the great arms and then sort of a depth of position player prospects. Right all of whom sort of looked like big leaguers, whether it's Pulecki or Cicchini or Conforto or Smith. Um, and then you could dream on, you know, Urania or Rosario. And, and that's where we are here as we're one month in is which of those guys is actually going to go from dreaming to, huh, yeah, that guy can play baseball. Um, and, and to be fair, there were, I have a friend who works for an NL Central club who who has said for two years that Rosario is the best position player prospect in the system. The people that like Ahmed Rosario really like Ahmed Rosario. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's the number one prospect in the system when we're making lists in January? Steven Matz. You don't think he's going to get 50 innings? <laughs> Um, if he doesn't, he's certainly the number one prospect. Sure, sure, sure. But that's not that's not fun. Uh, would you say that's a cop out? Yeah, I'm not saying it's a cop out. I'm saying it's no fun. It's also kind of a cop out. Um, yeah, you know, is there is there a scenario this year where he doesn't get to 50 innings? I guess sure. if Cinder, 
if Syndergaard is dominant and they're in the race in September and they don't want to call him up, I think there's uh, that's the safest. I think I think Matt's has to, if you're actually going to do odds, I think Matt's would have to be your actual odds leader because he's the most talented guy in the system who's done the most. Yeah, and uh, John Neese's shoulder could get balky next week, and he's probably the next guy up. Right, 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 right. I, I think I'd probably take the field over Matt's, but I think if you're going to take one guy, I'd take Matt's. Fair? Okay, fine. All right, uh, Conforto. Yeah, I think it's probably, I think you're probably right. Um, Just because he's think... a guy you look at, if you look up and down sort of the system right now, if you had to pick one, it's not sexy. If you had to pick one guy, like that will be a average to slightly above big league regular for six years. It's probably Conforto. Right, and and Rosario's not Rosario just hasn't done much in St. Lucie. He's young, you know. Is he going to hit in the second half? Probably not. He'll probably have to repeat the level. Conforto's going to end the year in Double A, and he'll hit some there. He'll hit he'll hit two eighty in Double A, and he'll put some over the wall, and he'll have a very clear path to the big leagues. It, it's actually it's not that hard. It's going to be Conforto. All right, Toby Hyde, author of Mets Minor League Blog, voices Savannah Sandnats. We went an hour. That's what happened. Did not plan that. But thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Anytime. time for your emails. And before we do emails, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 118. I believe I said 117 at the outset. It's not episode 117. That was last week. This is episode 118. I'm not going back and re-recording it. So now you know. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. Find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. And join our Facebook group at facebook.com backslash Amazing Avenue. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio. And you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com backslash Amazing Avenue. Or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post in Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can find me on Twitter, at Jeff Paternostro. My co-hosts this week are Steve Sippa and Aaron York. You can find them on Twitter, at Steve Sippa and at APY5000. My guest this week was Toby Hyde. You can find him on Twitter, at Toby Hyde. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. Of course, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And our first email is from Sean. Dear Jeff and question mark. At what point do we just accept that we... The fact that we are indeed snake bit. Dub, Dubs hurts his back rehabbing, and Dilson, I'll accept the no pickles policy. Well, you kind of just eh, whatever. Breaks his finger in warm ups. Really? Does this really happen to teams over and over? At what point do we just realize it's time to take the red pill and go to sleep? That's very dark. Do we ever really have a chance, or is the win streak making this overly cruel? Also, as you are presenting at the namesake, I suggest all pit pod listeners to listen to the appropriate The Thrill Is Gone as no other song seems to sum it up better R.I.P. B.B. and R.I.P. Mets 2015 Best Sean Alright, I never ever really get angry at emailers or, or take umbrage with them I'll have a little fun here and there 
But Sean, for God's sakes, it's RIP 2015 Mets. Not RIP Mets 2015. This is Mets <laughs> Twitter 101 here. And I will also add, uh, the full quote is much funnier, and it's, We're snake bit baby. At least in a darkly humorous way, which if you're a Mets fan, I think is the only uh, the only way to go. I mean, I do think we talked about sort of the, the 2014 Braves and the 2013 Jays last week. I do think we get tunnel vision where we just sort of see it happening to the Mets and don't realize that, you know, other teams get hurt, too. Oh, yeah. The Nats have got zero games this year. I was going to say their best player up until maybe two weeks ago. Now we'll go with their best player, non Bryce Harper edition, uh, Anthony Rendon. Steven Strasburg is probably pitching hurt. Uh, Doug Fister isn't pitching anymore, and it's also hurt. You know, this stuff happens. You see the Zips projections at the beginning of the year, but nobody gets 160 starts from five dudes, and as all the regulars play 150. I think there's a little confirmation bias here, too, sort of. Given the Mets' history of mismanagement of injuries, can we say that? (laughs) That seems fair. Um, We sort of are more sensitive to these things, and and look for them, even if they're not actually there. Yeah, look at what the Rays have gone through this year with Alex Cobb and Drew Smiley getting hurt. That's kind of submarine their chances. So, yeah, this does happen to other teams. I don't know if you want to go over... I don't know how much it happens to other teams in consecutive years, but and the Mets do have... And I guess you're going to have to knock on wood for this. They still have a lot of healthy, talented players. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the game with when Darno and Blevins both got hit on batted ball, or not batted balls, but pitch, one pitch ball, one batted ball, that was kind of drove us crazy a little bit. But And, I mean, it could be worse. There's that game when Flores and Kadir both got hit on the hand, too. Right. They could be down, like, two more players than they actually are. Yep. I started doing the research manually, and then I realized that the internet exists, and <laughs> people do things like that for you. And I found a website called mangameslost.com, and basically it tracks all of the... So what were you searching for to find man games? Yeah, no. It, it, don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, the Mets are actually third in terms of uh, 2015 DL time behind Tampa Bay and Texas. Texas has oh yeah, Texas is a total train wreck yeah. right now. So that's it. right now, last year by injuries, so yep. that's two right. in a row for them. Tampa Bay has on their DL right now uh, f- 15 and 60. Jeff Bellevue, uh, Alex Cobb, Matt Moore, C.J. Riefenhauser, Birch Smith, Drew Smiley, Kirby Yates, Brian Brett, Desmond Jennings, John Jaso. It's ten guys. I knew at least who six of those guys were, probably. All right. The Rangers have eight guys. They have Russ Detweiler, Yu Darvish, Liz Alberto, Bonilla, Derek Holland, Martin Perez, Jerkson Profar, Ryan Rua, and Nick Tepish. Yeah, so those are three rotation guys right there. Right. Yeah, the I think Mets... the same for the Rays, too, if you count uh, Matt Morris still coming off Tommy John. And the Mets sure. have... The Mets have 12 guys in the DL. Vic Black, Blevins, Carlisle, Edgen, Dylan G, Montero, Parnell, Wheeler, uh, Darno, Herrera, Wright, and Cesar Pueyo. In the rest of the the rest of the National League, the Braves have eight guys in the DL. The Marlins have four, the Nationals have seven, and the Phillies also have four. So yes, the Mets have definitely clustered some 
bad luck. Yeah, bad the injury Mets, luck. The Mets have the most guys right now on the disabled list, but they're not alone. And they rank uh, third in total DL days. Tampa Bay has the most with 382 days total. And Texas is second with 354. The Mets have 295. Oakland is fourth with 281. And then the Dodgers are fifth with 230. Hey, guys, you're going to find this hard to believe, but it looks like Collins and Worthen might be leaving Harvey in a batter or two too long because his command's gone. Are we still winning? Yes, for now. Okay. There's been some very good contact the last couple of batters. I'm not predicting a Matt Holiday two-run homer here, but it could happen. Nope, grounder to short. That's almost as bad. <laughs> it could be worse, but it was, it was literally too short. Wherever Wilmer Flores was standing. All right, it's intermission, so I'm going to watch the last inning of this. So all that said, Sean, yeah, we're probably snake bit, baby. I think I'm just used to it because I'm a... I'm a Giants fan in football, so they've also had two straight yeah. years of ridiculous energy, eh, ridiculous amounts of injuries. So just because it happens one year doesn't automatically mean you're gonna the injury bug is gonna regress and you're gonna have good injury luck the next year. And the early projections yeah, that's are, not how, are how regression works. <laughs> right, but the early projections for the football team is. Well, if they can stay healthy, but no one knows if that's going to happen yet because they've kind of been like the Mets of the NFL for the last two years. They've had way too many injuries, and it's hurt them a lot. So that's all I have to say, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, I, there's, yeah they, might, they might be snake bit. The Mets have certainly been injured a lot, but they're not the only team. I think Texas might be worse the last two years, so... That's probably that. Fair. The Braves had Josh like seven Lewis. people have Tommy John last year, it felt like. What about it? The Braves had like seven pitchers have Tommy John last season. <laughs> yeah, they had a lot. Our next and final email is from Dave. Longtime listener, first time caller. Eh, all right. Don't make a habit of that, listeners. This isn't a Mets specific question, but since I value Chris, Greg, Jeff, Rob, and Steve's opinions, sorry, Aaron. He does add whoever is on this week. And I read, I, I read that. I'm like, I've only been on twice. I want to know, what are some of the best baseball books you've read or know of? I have more than a few Amazon gift cards burning a hole in my wallet. Keep up the great work, all of you guys, but probably less Aaron. So this is a nice, this is different than what we normally cover. So I'm going to assume, for the purposes of this conversation, as a good Mets fan, you've probably already covered the basics. So, uh... The bad guys won. Worst team money can buy. And, uh... Oh, uh... Can't anybody here play this game? So assuming you've already got those covered, we can move on to sort of the more... I, I will say I like uh, Believeniks, which yeah. can be a bit grating at times. Yeah, Anytime you have, like, the... a, a poet and a critic writing. But I do have a soft spot for the 2005 season. They were so kind I, of eccentric and annoying at times. Yeah, it can be eccentric and annoying. And a little, uh... Ah, twee's not the right word. Maybe it is. It's a little precious, I guess. But I really like that 2005 team, so... That might be worth, like, a Kindle download, at least. 
Um, so the so you got sort of the big four. You got the glory of their times, sort of an oral history, especially if you're into like classic stuff. Uh, sort of an oral history of a pre uh, dead ball era ball players, so teens, twenties, thirties. He gets out of the dead ball era, but excellent, excellent book. Sort of one of the canonical baseball books. Uh, you have the Roger Angel Collection, Five Seasons. Also excellent. Uh, Lords of the Realm. Sort of, a, I guess, sort of more sort of how baseball became sort of baseball as sort of a, a a corporate concern, sort of the history of the financial or economic history of baseball. Uh, sort of looking at how sort of owners consolidated their power. Um, uh, Ball Four, of course, by Jim Bouton, another classic, and uh, Boys of Summer by Roger Kahn. But you've probably read most of those. Um, some other interesting ones, uh, we already mentioned him on the podcast, but Vekas and Rec is excellent. We're looking at Bill Beck and the, his sort of fun times in baseball. <laughs> Anybody else want to throw some more in here? Uh, I have a, uh, I read a lot, so I just went back onto my Goodreads list, and I have about 12 different titles. Let's see. <laughs> First book I ever have is The Soul of Baseball, A Road Trip Through Buck O'Neill's America ah, by, by Joe, Joe Pesnansky. Pesnansky. Yes. Yeah, it's a very, very good book. Um, wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball by R.A. Diggy. I should have included that in the book you should have already read as a Mets fan, but yes. Obvi- obviously, a good book. Um, the next one, Beyond Belief, Finding the Strength to Come Back by Josh Hamilton. Uh, it's It was actually very surprisingly... Haha, <laughs> pun, addictive book. Uh, I think I read it in like two days. It was just very, his life is very interesting. And how, you know, everything that happened to him. Um, Jackie Robinson, a biography by Arnold Rampersand. Obviously, there's a lot of biography biographies of Jackie Robinson, but this book is probably about 500 pages. It covers everything in a lot of depth. So it's probably, I think, the best one out there. Um,. Satch, Dizzy, and Rapid Robert, The Wild Saga of Interracial Baseball Before Jackie Robinson by Timothy Gay. It basically is about all of the crazy, you know, 20s to 40s era baseball, barnstorming, all of that good stuff. Uh, Bonsai Babe Ruth, Baseball Espionage and Assassination During the 1934 Tour of Japan by that Robert Fitz. That sounds awesome. Fitz. I haven't read that one off of that on my list. Yeah, it's... Just it's, on the title. Right, well, I mean... At the time, 1934, there's a lot of anti-American sentiment in Japan and a lot of uh, ultranationalism. So certain groups did not take kindly to uh, the MLB, uh, you know, players being invited to tour Japan and play against, you know, the best players there. So um, next one is top of the order. 25 writers pick their favorite baseball players of all time, and it's. It exactly is what it said. Just 25 different writers, you know, write a little bit about their favorite players, why. And, you know, since they're, since they are writers, you know, a lot of them have access, you know, per, had, you know, uh, direct access to the players and the clubhouses and everything. So you have some interesting stories. Um, the Boys of Summer by Roger Kahn, already mentioned. Praying for Gil Hodges by Thomas Oliphant. It's, um, basically the story of, you know, a, a 
kid growing up in 1950s Brooklyn and that whole kind of spiel. Um, Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy by Jane Levy. It's probably the definitive uh, biography of Koufax. Uh, you Gotta Have Wah by Robert Whitting. It's um, very... He, he's very knowledgeable about baseball you know, in Japan. I think that of the five, let's say, books that are, you know, have been written that are very authoritative, he, he's written them all. Um, and finally is Growing the, the, Growing the Game, The Globalization of Major League Baseball by Alan Klein. And it's basically about how, you know, baseball has, has grown in different corners of the world and different kind of, how different, uh, cultural attitudes have shaped it and the history of, you know, America in those countries and helping globalize baseball. So that's a big old list. It's a good list. I'm also going to throw in the, uh, the politics of glory by Bill James. I mean, assuming you don't own sort of the, the Bill James historical abstract, the most recent one, which I think is like 98 now, um, which I think is certainly worth it too. Um, it's sort of the, that was my introduction to sabermetrics. I'm sure as it was most other people, but it's also a great sort of like historical document. And I think James is a bit of an underrated writer as well. Oh, speaking of historical, I completely forgot speaking of historical, you know, documents in baseball, the Bronx is burning. That yep, was a another good one. Very, yeah. I think that's a fairly comprehensive list. Aaron, do you have any you want to add? Um, do we, Add the recent uh, Sandy Alderson book, Baseball Man. <laughs> no, we didn't. But I've been told I need to read it because there's a lot of Josh Satin in it. Oh, really? Apparently, like he shows up like more than any other player in the book. That's bizarrely <laughs> awesome. I'm, right now, I'm reading uh, Cardboard Gods. I do not have the author. Uh, yeah, I, I, he's excellent. So, yes, I would also second the uh, recommendation for that. Yeah. And he like and he grew up in the same town as Buster Olney, like this small town in Vermont, which is really bizarre. Um, but and he writes about growing up and baseball cards and like old seventies cards that are there's like a story behind each one. It's cool. And I also I just read AJ Mass's book. Yes, it's hot in here. Is that the name of it? This sounds right. Um, the Mister Met the, one. It's famous for the story about Mister Met, and it's not a just a baseball book but i thought the rest of it was also awesome if you're like me and you're curious about mascots then um it's a really great read um a very specific endorsement if you're curious about mascots <laughs> who's wouldn't be curious about mascots these mascots Flores just got hideously picked off it was not pretty yep that was ugly um Anyway, oh, and I just heard about this book, Trading Bases, by Joe Pita. About it's called, the tagline is how a Wall Street trader made a fortune betting on baseball, and uh, obviously, I'm guessing there's some pretty good statistical analysis stuff in there, and um, probably some fan- fantasy baseball nuggets as well. So, mm. uh, I, I want to get that soon. And what else do I have on this? There's this whole list. Oh, Dirk Hayhurst wrote a couple of books that I heard were good. The Bullpen Gospels. Yeah. Mm. Out of my league. 
I haven't gotten around to those. But I'll also I've throw one in. Now that we've spent all of your Amazon money and more, yeah. uh, Dave, I'll throw in uh, 59 and 84. If you only know Old Hoss Radburn from Twitter, it's sort of the uh, definitive story of his 1884 season. What a season it was. It was an amazing season. But I'm going to wrap it up there because we're already running long. Yes. Because we still have to get to our IFK Gothenburg update. Before that happens, once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. I will also, since we're only well, less than two weeks out, I will start once again plugging my Pitch Talks appearance, which I believe was alluded to in Sean's email at BB King's Bar and Grill on 42nd Street in Manhattan next Thursday. Doors at 6, show at 7.30. Show, okay. Um, stuff will happen at 7.30, I guess. Um, <laughs> you can go to the Pitch Talk site and get tickets. Use my last name, Paternostro, for $5 off. And now, your IFK Gothenburg update. This past Sunday, IFK Gothenburg faced off with Orbro SK in the Svenska Kuppen final. And yes, IFK Gothenburg is now your 2015 Svenska Kuppen champions. Nice. I actually overslept. Um, I had in my head that the game was starting at 105. Eastern Standard Time, because the I mean the ESPN app, if you have it, I don't know if you have it, um, is shitty in general. It is specifically shitty when it comes to soccer that isn't like Premier League or Champions League soccer. Like really bad. Like it'll be twenty minutes behind on championship games all the time, but it doesn't even cover the Svenska Cup in at all. But I have IFK Gothenburg as one of my favorite teams, so it kept showing me their game against AIK this Thursday which actually starts at 105. So I had that in my head. And then I woke up at 10, like rolled out of bed, checked Twitter, which is you know my normal morning, basically, and saw that they were down one nothing at the half. I'm like, oh, crap. So I put the game on, watched the second half, and it was, you know, that was a half to watch, certainly. Uh, it was a sloppy game, just awful. And I've watched a lot of lower league football, like lower than the championship, like League One English football. It was on that level. You know, IFK, clearly on top, had dominant in possession. Ouroboros already time-wasting and parking the bus in the box. And IFK just couldn't break through. Their final ball into the box was sloppy. You know, as they kept sort of pressing higher for that goal, you worry you're going to get picked off on the counter, which almost happened. They actually had a goal disallowed, which shouldn't have been. The ref blew the whistle late and should have played advantage. But that's that's life. But then finally, Lasavibe put one in. And after that, you knew a second was coming. Uh, Soren Reeks added a poacher's goal. And then it was just sort of they held held down the fort. There were a million headers clear from the central defense team that uh, Anders praised last week on the show. And they probably should have put in a third. But I said it was a sloppy game. And no one cares how you win the cup after you hoist it. So I'm counting this as a trophy for the podcast, which is one more than Arsenal will win this year probably. We go back to the offensive league, as I said, against AIK. This Thursday, and that is your IFK Gothenburg update, and that is your podcast. Anybody else have anything to plug or talk about before we wrap it up? Um, Do you want to do a quick payback review, Steve? Did you watch Payback? Yeah, the main event was good. The rest of it was trash, but that's (laughs) what you figured it would be. I actually disagree with you a little bit there. 
Um, I thought the first hour was pretty solid. Um, I liked the two out of three false tag match. It was all right. I'm not a fan. I don't like New Day. I don't get New Day. You know, I, I I liked it for. I liked the. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan either. But I thought the match was well worked. Yeah. I think it used the two out of three false stipulation well. And like of it course, was nice. And you gotta love the uh, racist WWE finishers. Yeah. <laughs> I actually I saw that done better at a Dragon Gate USA show a few years ago. Weirdly enough. Um, but there it was played for laughs. I saw uh, uh, Dylan Hales, who you know, hosts the A1 Wrestling Podcast, who I know from way back in the day, back when I was a, a frequenter of the A1 Wrestling Message Board, made a, I think, half-joking comment about it being like a response to like the structure, like the structural racism, since they did it in Baltimore. Like Obviously, the white authority figure in Baltimore can't tell black people apart. Referring to the WWE, but all right, you want to, you want to go there, yeah, fine. But uh, you know, it's like a classic wrestling finish where one of the members of the triad that's not in the match sneaks in for the pin. But usually, they at least like have masks on or something. Like the Killer Bees used to do that all the time. I feel like, but the match itself was very good, um, and I enjoyed. Uh, I actually enjoyed Bray Wyatt against Ryback. I was way better than it had any right to be. Really. Yeah, I actually, kinda, I actually enjoyed the match. Like, it wasn't great or anything, but... Yeah, just kind of fast-forwarded through it. Yeah. yeah. And the opener was fine, if nothing special. Anytime there's a lot of blood, I'm my bloodless is satiated, so... Yeah. It just, it just completely fell apart after the Rusev-Cena match, which was just horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, like, in a predictable way, but it just took forever... And the structure of it was all screwed up, like just going from like spot to spot. Um, the dogs are barking. Yeah, that sounds about right. Somebody's yeah. dogs are barking. I'm, Not mine, surprisingly enough. My friend was at Payback last night. I was jealous. I heard about the Shield teaming up to powerbomb Orton through a through a, one of the announcer tables. Yeah, yeah that was, was cool. So my issue with the main event, which I I think it was fine. You know, on the solid end of things, like on sort of it was a 55 match, solid average for a WWE main event. So my problem with it, I'm just, you know, I spent the last 15 years gladly watching Toriumon and Dragon Gate main events that have a ton of interference, but I've never. Uh, it was a little excessive. Yeah, with Rollins, it just like breaks up the structure of the match so badly. The match never gets any flow going. Because first you had the J&J security just constantly running in. And at least like in Toriumon and Dragon Gate, they would pretend to distract the ref. Like they don't even make an effort. It's like, oh, there's no DQs. Do whatever you want. It's like, eh. Like the shield stuff was cool. The uh, Rollins reigns, uh, the Ambrose reigns stuff was cool. But then when it just became like, all right, we're just going to go to like the Orton, Rollins, Kane stuff. It's kind of like, eh, I don't care about this. Yeah. Sorry, the Orton. Rollins, Kane stuff, yeah. And now I, I also fear this is leading up to Kane winning, winning money in the bank. No, don't even say that. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Mm. I just, oh. I have no confidence. They're just like, this could be like a star-making performance. Right, we got first and third one out against Familia. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it could have, we'll see where they go with Ambrose from here. If, you know, if Ambrose wins money in the bank and has to win the title at some point, great. That would be good. I just don't have any confidence that's going to happen. Much like I don't have any confidence the uh, Mets are going to trade for a big bat that they need. 
Oh. See what I did? I brought it full circle. Nice. I went that down. Nice. I went to uh, NXT. Those were running on that. Yeah, because yeah, it was impossible to get a good read, I think. I don't like how far they're playing the infield in here. But I'm not going to give you live play-by-play play of a match they, of a, of a game you've probably already seen by the time you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> so instead, we'll just wrap things up. Maybe the game will still be going on. It might be, actually. would be impressive. It would be. Not really. I mean, they've played 20 inning games before. Multiple 20 inning games. 20 inning games against the Cardinals. Yep. Will they still be playing on next week's edition of Mason Avenue Audio? I don't know. You have to listen and find out. <laughs>